Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Double Reel, the nerdy amateur film podcast. Now if you thought part 3 sequels are tough, you should see the logistics involved in doing a part 4. This is where you have to pull out all the stops and fill your latest instalment with everything but the kitchen sink to try and keep things fresh. Some of my part 4 sequel ideas included a super intelligent shark which can travel as fast as a jumbo jet and explodes on contact with wooden stakes. Cold War themed training montages, time travelling humpback whales, extended underwater fight scenes, a change in lead actors because the original cast don't want to do it anymore, one last performance from Steve Gutenberg before he quits, a series of contrived ways for the same villain to still plot to kill everyone even though he died in the last instalment, an eye watering fee, an equally contrived plot device to bring back the lead actress even though she died in the last instalment, a tired lead actor after a 20 year gap contending with an annoying new sidekick and a shit storyline about aliens and scratch and sniff aroma scope so I can say this one's in 4D because the last one was in 3D. Of course, I don't have the budget for any of that shite, so it's just me droning on into a microphone like normal. My name's James Adamson, and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. You can find me on Twitter on at filmnrx73, or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to my profile. You're welcome to give me feedback on the podcast or your own thoughts on the films I discussed or any other film-related thoughts you feel like sharing. I'm also on Instagram with the same title as my Twitter handle and there's also a Double Reel Podcast Facebook page to follow if you're that way inclined. The podcast, as ever, is set out like a kind of monthly magazine with different features for you to get your teeth into, split into two parts, or two reels, if you like, for those who want to take a break in between tasty portions of nerdy film content. Here's what's coming up in this month's episode. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd. Then I'll walk you through a classic or more worthy film from the list of films I've been meaning to wait time for instead of watching the same old stuff on TV. This month, it's the 2008 Swedish vampire film, Let the Right One In. There's also another special guest interview, James Adamson in conversation with James Adamson. This month, we're looking at films we were shown at school, what we liked, what we didn't, what was suitable for what we were trying to learn and what was wildly inappropriate. My hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Alan Parker's brilliant but overlooked Angel Heart. And in The One That Got Away, I cover an intriguing story about a film that never got made, but I wish we'd got the chance to see. This month, it's David Fincher's Captain Nemo. To finish, we have the remake Hate Watch, which for this episode is the redundant and sacrilegious 2015 remake of Point Break. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. N.Y. Mackham, who's becoming a bit of a regular on this page, gets in touch to say, I think my favourite feature is the remake Hate Watch, as schadenfreude is my driving emotion. I particularly liked your ranty list of shit remakes at the start of last month's feature on Ghostbusters. However, the Wicker Man remake is an unfair inclusion. You would need a heart of stone to not enjoy the scene where villagers put a mesh hat on Nicolas Cage, making him scream, Not the bees! Not to mention the scene where Cage knocks a woman out with a single punch while dressed as a bear. Well, you make a strong case. Perhaps this should be further up my list for consideration and discussion. Alexander gets in touch from Denmark, or possibly the Netherlands, I'm not quite sure which, and says, Short Bus is my favourite film and my recommendation for inclusion on your classics and recommended list. I don't think I know of anyone else who has seen it. Well, thank you, and I will add that to my list. From what I hear, it's another one which will require careful explaining to my wife as to why I'm watching it. Ronnie gets in touch via the Facebook page with more recommendations for the classics list, namely City of Lost Children, Dark City, Dark Water, the remake, which is actually quite good, he says, The Man from Nowhere, A Tale of Two Sisters, Melancholia, and Starfish. Thanks, Ronnie. That's an excellent list. I've seen some of them already, but others will have to go on my list, and they're all great recommendations for anyone looking to add to theirs. Fletch73 said, Loving the Oscar chat with the two Jameses. The 80s winners were odd. Glad you enjoyed it, Fletch, and no arguments here about the 80s. Scorer has been commenting on the Oscars as well. Braveheart winning? What the fuck was that all about? What indeed? John John shared our bafflement at Crash and Shakespeare in Love winning Best Picture, and the Englishman Abroad said, All the President's Men lost out for Best Picture to Rocky, for fuck's sake. Rocky wasn't even the best boxing movie ever made. Absolutely. The list of films that lost out to Rocky is phenomenal. Marty Moose has got in touch on the socials with some suggestions for hidden gems. Cutter's Way, Crushing, and Sorcerer. Great suggestions, although since Mark Kermode has been singing the praises of Sorcerer, I'm not sure how hidden a gem it is these days. Marty's also suggested I could do a feature focusing on interesting directors like Ken Russell, Nick Rogue, or Walter Hill. Another excellent suggestion, which I will look into. And finally, Mickey V, getting in touch to talk about the final cut of Apocalypse Now. 
only seen the original release version before. The French stuff helped clarify the politics and the ending made a lot more sense. I was surprised how cohesive it seemed in retrospect when you consider how stoned they all were. Good timing, Mickey, as I've got that very film in my roundup coming next. Thanks to all for your contributions, and now, on with the show. And now for the regular roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd. For the past few months I've been accustomed to all my film viewing being confined to the house because of Covid lockdown and there being very little cinema news. In the past month however I actually got the opportunity to go and see actual films at actual cinemas. In terms of film news, legendary British director Alan Parker sadly died at the end of July after a long illness. He was 76 years old, although his last film was way back in 2003 when he was just 59, which feels like his career had been cut short a little. He was famous for films like Midnight Express and The Commitments, and his films in the musical genre were especially successful, as well as great examples of a highly individual and distinctive filmmaker. As it happens, I had already decided to discuss one of his films for this episode, so it's timely to acknowledge his irreplaceable contributions to film in the late 20th century. Aside from that, I busied myself this month with the usual range of home-based film viewing, a combination of streaming, reaching into my DVD collection, and what was shown on TV. First up, I watched Spider-Man Far From Home, since I'd previously caught up with Homecoming, the other new Spider-Man film. This was a good follow-up that maintained the standard of the first film, all exciting and well done with the best Spider-Man I've seen, of the live-action films anyway. I would say that we're yet to see a bigger more, or more kind of earth-shattering story in these standalone Spider-Man films. I know he was a key character in the Avengers Infinity War and Endgame films, but I do hope the next actual Spider-Man movie has him facing some of the more major villains and challenging storylines from this character's canon. Until then, the best recent Spider-Man film will continue to be the amazing animated film Into the Spider-Verse. The only other thing I'd add is that I've noticed a lot of MCU antagonists are disgruntled and deranged former employees of Tony Stark. Probably need a good review of the HR department at Stark Industries because something isn't right there. I mean, something isn't right about most HR departments, but most of them manage not to destroy whole cities. Then Twins on TV. Uh, this was classic easy viewing, channel hopping after dinner one evening, and this happened to be on. I've seen it plenty of times before, and it's good fun. Arnie proving to actually have a decent comedy string to his bow, and Danny DeVito brilliant as ever, blatantly stealing the film. Whoever came up with the idea of those two as long-lost twin brothers deserves a medal, and probably a drug test and uh, director Ivan Reitman knows how to make a film like this work. Then Jackie Brown. This was a bit impromptu as my wife and I were meant to be catching up on uh, Peaky Blinders but she fell asleep mid-episode and I didn't want to watch ahead and leave her behind. This is not an unknown occurrence in my house so it's always handy to have some alternative viewing teed up to fill the time. What I teed up in this case was my favourite Tarantino film. As ever it was fantastic, near perfection from all concerned. I grieve a little that Tarantino hasn't done more films like this, but as a fan of him as a writer-director and of Elmore Leonard who wrote the source novel, this was a pleasure from beginning to end. My wife woke up from her power nap just as the end credits were rolling and I was finishing my second whiskey, so it couldn't have worked out better really. Next I watched Queen and Slim, which was an actual cinema showing in an actual cinema. My first such film viewing of the year 2020. Like anyone who has ventured out to a cinema in the slight easing of UK lockdown, I spent a fair amount of time leading up to this wondering what it was going to be like and checking safety procedures, making sure I had a mask with me and all that sort of thing. It was a bit eerie when I got there walking down the corridors of a public building for the first time in months and a bit nerve-wracking thinking how social distancing would work if I got stuck with other people in a doorway or something. But in the end it was fine, either because it wasn't a busy showing or because the Everyman Cinema purposely limited ticket sales there was a lot of space between me and the rest of the audience. As for the film itself, I did enjoy it. It's the feature film debut from Melina Matsukas, who comes from videos and commercials, which is a well-worn path for new filmmakers these days. The leads are British actors Daniel Kaluuya and Jodie Turner-Smith as a young American couple on their first Tinder date who don't really get on and are about to go their separate ways when they get involved in a traffic stop with a racist police officer that turns violent. From there, we get a kind of updated road movie about fugitives who aren't really the bad guys, Kind of like Thelma and Louise, but with a modern twist that looks at the state of race relations in today's America. It's well made and the performances are particularly good with some genuinely powerful scenes. It's at its best building atmosphere on the road with the two characters where it's very good. At other times it's a bit clunky where the story suddenly snaps back to being chased or trying to avoid the police. And it relies on some contrived plot twists and unbelievable characterization to drive its story. I think it had a clear idea how they wanted to end the film uh, and sort of forced it in that, in that direction a little bit. 
But nonetheless, a good debut, enjoyable film. No doubt we'll be hearing more from Alina Matsukas and we'll definitely be hearing from these actors again. Later in the month, I watched The Heat on TV, a cop-action comedy starring Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock, directed by Paul Feig. It was perfectly decent, pretty much follows the standard format for buddy cop films, and makes use of some good comedy actors. As is my custom these days, I thought in honour of this film I would put together an impromptu top ten of buddy cop films. The only rule I imposed on this is that both characters in the film's pairing have to be law enforcement officers, so no private detectives and no dogs. In no particular order, Running Scared, the 1986 film with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal, The Guard, Lethal Weapon, Akira Kurosawa's Stray Dog, In the Heat of the Night, Hot Fuzz, Rush Hour, 21 Jump Street, Freebie and the Bean, and To Live and Die in LA. I haven't included French Connection because it was in last month's top 10 about New York cop films. Beverly Hills Cop doesn't really pair Eddie Murphy up with a single partner, it's two local cops, so I discounted that as well. And Bad Boys was a near miss, excluded because even though I like it, it's not a good idea to reward or praise Michael Bay too much in case he gets out of his box and does another Pearl Harbor. Then Apocalypse Now Final Cut, this was shown on TV as well. Now I was aware that Coppola had released a new cut of the film and figured I would get round to it eventually. Uh, we're getting to Blade Runner levels with the different versions of the film now, except of course that the original release version of Apocalypse Now was absolutely fine. And while the Red X version had some great stuff in it, it seemed mostly like stuff they were right to leave out originally. I happened to tune into this new version and was hooked again like I always am when I watch this film. So hooked in fact that I went and found that a lovely 4K ultra high definition digital copy of this new cut was available for just £4.99. Bargain. As for a new cut of the film, I think it's more like Coppola wanted to release in the first place. It cuts out a few unnecessary scenes from the Redix version, but keeps the French plantation sequence that I think does really add to the story. On the whole, brilliant to watch it again and be bowled over once again by the surrealist nightmare vision of the Vietnam War that Coppola created with great picture and sound. Like listener Mickey V says, despite the chaos, it really works, even when people like Dennis Hopper and Marlon Brando are going completely off the map. Then The Dark Knight. Now, this was because there was a local-ish cinema I've not been to which has an IMAX screen that's reopened. It's showing Christopher Nolan's blockbusters again ahead of Tenet, hopefully coming out. I didn't actually get to see The Dark Knight on IMAX originally, I only saw it on a regular screen. I've seen all of his films since on IMAX without fail, because with Nolan films it does make a difference. So I really wanted to venture out with masking gloves to try and see this. I also wanted to see if this cinema was going to be okay to go to when Tenet is released wanting to be sure they're keeping things safe, that it's not a shithole area, and that the IMAX is actually any good. I've been caught out on the latter before, because the Swiss Cottage IMAX in London is fucking shit. Anyway, I booked a ticket, nervously headed out, and was pleased to see the complex is on its okay, the safety measures were very good, and the IMAX screen is pretty good. As for the film itself, of course, if you don't like Christopher Nolan, this will do nothing for you, and if you do like Christopher Nolan, you know, of course, how good The Dark Knight is. But, oh my fucking god, sitting there in front of the biggest available screen with full sound, it hits you just how amazing it is. After more than a decade enjoying it at home, which is not the same however good the TV and sound setup is, this hit me just like the first time I sat in a cinema and watched it. I remember now how it is constantly moving, driving you and the story forwards from the first minute until two and a half hours later. I was absolutely wrapped up and gripped. Remembering how Nolan gives you the big $200 million blockbuster and the superhero film everyone is demanding, but packs it with so much more. Heath Ledger, the clash of the main characters, Hans Zimmer's score. Oh my God, this is why I love films. The feeling I had afterwards walking back to my car, absolutely buzzing. That's what I want to feel when I've watched a film. The way I felt when I first saw the director's cut of Blade Runner, after the usual suspects, Jackie Brown. Every few years when a film is really special, perhaps most recently with Get Out, and of course, whenever Nolan is in top form, that's how I feel. It just made me all the more excited about Tenet coming out. And finally, Inception, back at the same local cinema a week later to get in another IMAX showing. Wow, what an incredibly daring piece of filmmaking. I see new things about it every time I watch it, and it still surprises me, especially on a big screen like this. Only Christopher Nolan could make a film with this budget, on this scale, about a dream within a dream, within a dream, and finally within another dream, and make an entire auditorium gasp at the sight of a small spinning top. As well as being a sci-fi classic, an exploration of dreams and reality, and a stunning action movie, it's possibly the greatest heist movie of all time as well. And perhaps the most daring heist of all time, the greatest act of inception, is the one Christopher Nolan himself pulled off to convince Hollywood to give him $160 million to make a film like this that turns everything on its head. Wow. Do the Dark Knight and then top it with this. 
I'm unbelievably excited to see Tenet now. Can't wait. Now for the feature where each month I try and watch a classic or more worthy film than whatever ITV4 is showing yet again. Often I've found it's easy to slip into bad habits of watching the same old stuff and miss it out on something that would be rewarding viewing if I would just make time for it. Perhaps you have your own list of great films you've been meaning to catch up on and the same mental block about watching them sometimes. Will it be as good as everyone says? Am I in the right frame of mind to watch that kind of film right now? I've found that promising to watch them for the podcast helps me make time to watch them. I've really enjoyed the films I've watched for this feature and found myself afterwards wishing I'd got round to watching them sooner. Hopefully if you've been listening to this feature it's inspired you to watch some of the same films and maybe tick a few off your own watch list. So far the films I've crossed off my list are Lady Vengeance, Punch Drunk Love and Lady Diabolique. The rest of my list looks like this. Das Boot extended version and I still haven't worked out how to file it under B or D. Wages of Fear. David Cronenberg's very controversial film Crash, Korean zombie film Train to Busan, Hell or High Water, Let the Right One In, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Oscar-winning Japanese film Departures, and to keep the list going, I've added CSA, The Confederate States of America, which a listener recommended, which is an alternative history film imagining what would have happened if the South had won the American Civil War. So I was looking through this list, picking what to watch this month, Sometimes I'll try and see if it fits well with the other films I'm discussing, other times I'll just pick one. This month, I just picked one. Let the Right One In is the film I've chosen to watch, for no other reason that I've been putting off watching it for years now, and it's getting embarrassing. The usual process was followed, select the film, put the DVD case next to the TV, fret and feel guilty each time I don't put it on, finally put it on and watch it. But first the background. Originally, Let the Right One In was a best-selling novel in Sweden, written by John Ivida Lindqvist, I hope I pronounced that right. Its success was such that dozens of filmmakers tried to acquire the rights to adapt it into a film. Wikipedia informs me before I watched the film that the book, quote, focuses on the darker side of humanity, dealing with thematically heavy issues such as existential anxiety, social isolation, fatherlessness, divorce, alcoholism, school bullying, paedophilia, genital mutilation, self-mutilation and murder. So, um, par for the course for Scandinavian drama, but possibly not the jolliest Saturday night's viewing I could imagine. Apparently the film tones the story down from the book, but I was still bracing myself for some chilly and faintly grim Swedish horror fare. Of course, most good Scandinavian drama of any type is chilly and faintly grim, but usually really watchable, so I was still looking forward to seeing it. Lindqvist ended up making it with director Thomas Alfredsson, who was quite well regarded in Sweden from his work in TV and film prior to that. They bonded over the storyline as they both remember having a hard time growing up and not fitting in at school, which is a key part of the storyline. Lindqvist wrote the script himself, concentrating on the coming-of-age aspects of his novel. A 12-year-old boy who is very meek and sensitive is friendless and bullied at school. Then a girl his own age moves into the apartment next door, who seems to be a bit of a misfit herself. They become friends while at the same time a series of strange murders is taking place in the area. Their friendship develops into possibly something a bit more, but is complicated by the fact that she is actually a vampire and has been 12 for a very long time. It was a critical and commercial hit, only missing out on being Sweden's entry for Best Foreign Film Oscar due to some scheduling glitches, um, and it won all sorts of other awards. I remember hearing about it after its relatively limited UK cinema run and being keen to see it. I was in a shop browsing the DVD section, remember that? And it was in a sort of multi-buy sale, so I came out of the shop with a handful of new discs looking forward to watching all these new treasures I'd acquired. That was a decade ago, and I've never got round to seeing it. This month, when I took it off the shelf, it was still in the original cellophane, which does not even slightly biodegrade, by the way. I lose count of the number of times I must have caught sight of this film while browsing the shelves for something to watch, and the little pinch of guilt I felt that I'd still not watched it. Finally, that monkey is off my back. And so to the film itself. Anyone who's watched Scandinavian film or TV shows will recognise it immediately, both from the look of it and the pace and atmosphere. It's set in 1981 in a town outside Stockholm where everyone seems to live in blocks of flats. There's a recurring shot of a bit of a sparse children's play area in the courtyard outside a tower block which really sets the tone. The two young leads are very good, both the lonely schoolboy and the girl vampire who befriends him. Although it's a horror film because people get killed and it's about vampires, it's not so much about setting up a series of victims to be stalked and slaughtered. There's not really any typical horror jump scares. 
It focuses first and foremost on the kind of coming-of-age story and the developing friendship and ambiguous romantic feelings of the two young leads. Like Alfredson's other films, it's quite austere and restrained and very carefully shot, but very affecting. Then when there are moments of violence and horror, they are very well-timed and provide a few shocks and thrills. They don't overdo it in terms of showy sound, splashy gore effects and jump cuts the way a Hollywood film would. How un-Swedish would that be? But they're pretty powerful and have more impact because they're grounded in a story about characters you've come to care about. From the first meeting of the boy and the girl vampire, I was touched by their awkward, gentle affection for each other. I had a feeling the relationship could end up a couple of different ways due to their circumstances, and I was bracing myself for tears if what I suspected turned out to be what happened. I must say the story didn't end up quite the way I thought it would initially, although as the film goes on it shows you the dilemma the characters are in and what possible choices they might have, so that when the ending is revealed you believe in it 100%. From what I knew about the book while I was watching the film, which was the rather ominous opening paragraph from Wikipedia, they have hinted at some of the darker aspects of the book in the film without really going into them. This is probably wise, as in the books you have hundreds of pages to add context around things that happen in the narrative, that would be lost if you did them in the film and it would overbalance the story. Generally, it's a great example of show-don't-tell filmmaking. The film is layered in a way. At the centre, you have the story of two 12-year-olds who are very different, but have in common that they're different from everyone else and feel quite alone. They find each other and in difficult circumstances want to hold on to each other. Layered on top of that, you have the problems that come from her being a vampire, deaths and other incidents, obviously, and the way it affects people around her and drags them into a kind of collision course. And around that you have this small town, a real place where people go to school and work, have problems and relationships. The world around them cannot help but be affected by the death and strangeness that has started to happen around them and get caught up in it. And because they get caught up in it, they find themselves in circumstances they find hard to deal with, because these two kids are only 12 years old even though, as the vampire girl says, she's been 12 years old for maybe centuries. What's really good about the film is that it leaves a lot of things up to the viewer to interpret what's happening, instead of spoon-feeding us the story. The relationships between the boy and his parents, the vampire girl and the older man who protects her and collects blood for her, even the relationship between the boy and the girl. The conclusion to the film is open-ended and leaves you to make your mind up what happens. This is all very grown up and Scandinavian, and does a brilliant job of making you believe and invest in the story. Thomas Alfredson's brilliance in directing this film brought him to international attention, and he followed this film with his adaptation of the Le Carre classic Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, to similar levels of acclaim. His belated follow-up film The Snowman had a troubled production by all accounts, and Alfredson has completely disowned it. His next film is a reboot of an older Swedish comedy film series, and he's expressed a reluctance to keep working in the film industry. That means we cannot be sure we will ever see more films from him like Let the Right One In, which is a shame and makes this film all the more precious. I would normally say at the end of this feature that you should seek the film out and watch it, but I suspect I'm the one who's behind the curve on that one. So I will just offer my apologies for taking so long to watch Let the Right One In, and my thanks to this feature of the podcast for getting me to watch it finally. For those of you who haven't seen it yet, don't leave it as long as I did to get around to it. And now for the regular special guest conversation to give the podcast a bit of variety. Not that much variety, of course, as both the people in the conversation are called James Adamson. As ever, my son James is my guest help me to dig into a niche topic and inform and entertain the listeners at home. In case you need reminding, James and I have the same name but different accents and share a love of film in all its various guises. Last month's discussion was a bit of a monster, going through decades of questionable Oscar wins and ending up taking much longer than planned to get through. This month we have a more manageable topic, but we hope you will enjoy it just as much. We decided to look at the various films we were shown at our respective schools. The idea came from a conversation about certain films we saw in the classroom that were amusingly inappropriate for the audience, and grew from there. Despite our experiences occurring a generation apart, there were a few films we were both shown, and some common themes to the viewing choices of our teachers. The first part of the conversation will close out part one of this month's episode, and the exciting conclusion of our conversation will open up part two. We recorded this on Anchor FM on our phones, and the audio was mostly alright, but apologies for any blurs and crackles here or there. Hope you enjoy it. 
Hello and welcome to another edition of James Adamson in Conversation with James Adamson, where my son and I talk about various niche topics to do with films we've watched or films that we're interested in. And last month we did the Oscars. Um, that turned out to be an absolutely massive topic. We're hoping this one is a little bit more self-contained. Um, we have been considering whether James Adamson in Conversation with James Adamson is a catchy enough title. We've been, my wife suggested James Adamson Squared, so we're playing around with that at the moment. But the main thing is the format is the same. Two, uh, two people with the same name in conversation about nerdy film topics. So, welcome, James. Hello. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So, we decided that this month we were going to discuss films that we were shown at school, just yeah. because it's an interesting kind of setting to watch a film. And it's um, what I thought was interesting when we did the Oscar chat and when we did the other um, conversation, there was a lot of things where it's kind of our relationship to film, kind of joint relationship, because even though your own opinions and your own kind of watching habits have led you to kind of think what you think about the Oscars and stuff, it feels like, you know, we've watched Scorsese together, we've been interested in these films together, whereas these films have been kind of thrown out as randomly by teachers, and it's like, you know, you haven't chosen to watch it, you've just been given it to watch, so I thought it'd be interesting to see what that looks like as a, as a category. So, I mean, I've got a few different films, some of which were like inappropriate to be shown, some of which were the school trying to educate us with, you know, in conjunction with what we were studying at the time uh, and various other things. Um, and I thought maybe we could just throw a few things backwards and forward. The one that sticks out to me the most, probably because it's the best film I did watch at school, um, which is controversial because I also saw Shawsh I also saw Shawshank Redemption, that's a mouthful, at school. But um, in... I think second year of secondary school, we call it S2 up in Scotland because we're not weird. Um, we we watched Jaws and we were supposed to do like just a, just kind of like like a small like thousand word essay about, you know, what we thought of Jaws. I can't even remember what the question was. I think I did mine on like the build up of tensions through use of music and sound and I was blown away because I'd, I'd never seen Jaws before. Um, I think it was a good age to watch Jaws because I imagine you watched Jaws when you were about four because that's, that's the age you were when it came out. Um, but, yeah, um, I, didn't, I didn't watch it right when it came out because I think I was only about two when it came out. But okay, then yeah. when we were about seven, when when people started to get video recorders, yeah, uh, our, our parents, uh, the parents of a few of the kids, just decided, "Hey, watch this film. It looks exciting." And a bunch of seven or eight year olds got completely traumatized. Um, <laughs> everyone in my generation watched yours too young, and and, <laughs> and and took a long time to get over it. Well, yeah, because I remember you saying like you were not you like that film was proper scare for you. Whereas I watched it when I was about 13, 14, so I wasn't the shark looks really shit, and it wasn't that like I didn't find it that yeah. scary, but I did find it really good. I was mesmerized yeah. by a film that was you know. What, what, what subject? Point. What subject were you watching it for? Was um, like, uh... <laughs> for English. Mister Brothers was a legend. Like <laughs> you weren't you weren't doing the novel, were you? Because obviously there is a novel that could almost justify it if you were studying the novel. I think she might have played it that way. I'd, I've never read the book, but I yeah. think maybe that's what she played it off as. Like yeah. Um, but no, I, I distinctly remember her making us do an essay about you know. I think it was to show how we can be. It was like an analytical essay. I think that's how she wanted us to like to to hone that skill, I guess. But no, I mean, for a film that the that point was about thirty five years old. It was really good. I think it's it's one of my favourite Spielbergs. Um, although I, I, it's a shame that you know it's given people a deep like a deep mistrust of sharks. Um, yeah, the um the guy who wrote the book was really regretful afterwards. Um, yeah. he, he wrote the book, and I, it, it was it was inspired by there was a lot of interest in great white sharks. There'd been some shark attacks, and uh, there was especially uh, in the early twentieth century there was like some shark attacks off the coast of New Jersey, which was like a big topic. And the guy was a thriller writer and thought, oh, this would be exciting. Let's do a story about a killer shark. But as you yeah. got older, he learned a bit more and realised that he'd maybe done a bit of harm to the cause of great white sharks. And he became an environmentalist and was a yeah. bit apologetic for the way he portrayed sharks. Well, that was, that was good of him. I, I remember you saying something like that before, but for some reason I had it in my head that that was Michael Crichton, but he couldn't have written an apologetic yeah. story about, you know, yeah. damaging the image of the dinosaurs. He wrote Jurassic Park, <laughs> didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, um, no I, thought, I thought it was um, it was a really good film. Um you know, it's got an excellent score. I think uh, Robert Shaw steals the show somewhat for me. Oh, absolutely. Um, that is a really... I still quote that film to to this day. Um, but no, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I really I really enjoyed it. But like I said, it's it's a bit weird that that's the best film I've seen at school and I have watched Shawshank Redemption. I imagine that causes a bit of controversy with maybe yourself and some of the listeners. Uh, no, I mean, I, I don't know. Shawshank Redemption is a very good film. I think it's controversial to prefer Jaws to Shawshank Redemption. I think they're both both good films. Yeah. What about you? What's the film that sticks out to you when you think of the films you watched at school? Although it's not the same kind of film, it probably falls into a similar category of yours of 
this wasn't really to do with exactly anything we were studying, but we're really glad we got to watch it. And it was the original Ralph Bakshi version of Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> oh, okay. Um, so as I say, I'm not entirely sure how we got to see it, but that, that, that was the one we got to see. When was that released again? That's 1978. Is that the animated one? Yeah, yeah, it's animated. And um, it's funny because, I mean, this again is sort of top end of primary school age. <laughs> And yeah. so kind of age appropriate to be watching it, but it was just on that borderline of, even though it was animated, it was sort of borderline scary and gory in places. And it was really dark. And, you know, there's not many kind of animated films that then had anything like that. It was really, it's, it's actually really good. I mean, obviously everyone talks about the new Lord of the Rings trilogy and that is, I think overall better. Because the yeah. problem with money and couldn't actually do the whole thing. They decided to try and do it in, in two films rather than three. And then they never got to do the second half. So it's kind of, you watch it now and you go, but where's the rest of the story? But no, it's, yeah. just really, really enjoyed it. Um, the, you know, the scene in Lord of the Rings early on where they're going to meet Aragorn, although I think he's called Strider at that point, and the, uh, the, the wraiths come in and like, or the, whoever the assassins are, they go in and they stab the beds and they've actually, they've actually put pillows in the beds and they've actually already left. Okay, yeah, I know that one. Oh, in the book, it was in the animated film, and Peter Jackson liked it so much he redid it for his film. Okay. Um, so it's, it's rotoscoped, which I talked about in a previous podcast. So no, it's not all rotoscoped. Some of it is traditional animation, like drawn animation, and some of the really complex battle scenes have essentially filmed it or done film of people on horseback and fighting and everything, and then then animated over it to make it look more realistic. Okay. Um, that's a bit weird because the animation switches from one to another and it can sometimes looks a bit, oh, hang on, they just changed the animation. A bit jarring, yeah. Yeah, but it's still really, really good. And quite a good cast. You've got John Hurt playing Aragorn. Okay. Anthony Daniels, who played C-3PO in the Star Wars films, plays uh, Legolas. Okay. That's so it's, it's, mad, it's mad, though. The budget of the film was $8 million, to do, and they did up to the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep. Okay. And, and doing that... Going that far in the Peter Jackson trilogy cost $190 million, so it's mad the difference in budget between the two films. Yeah, I'm trying to picture C-3PO talking like Legolas. Um, yeah, he probably does pretty much his own his own voice. Um, his voice is C-3PO, because I'm just... Uh, Orlando Bloom, while a somewhat limited actor, does do Legolas very well, and his lines being delivered by a bumbling robot would be... Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think Anthony Daniels was a bit of a, a voice actor, so, I, 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 to be honest, I can't remember what he sounded like now. But um, and I didn't even realise it was Anthony Daniels at the time. So I, I honestly couldn't tell you what he sounded like. I might have to kind of dig it out and watch it again. Yeah. Um, it's funny though; it wasn't originally going to be animated. They were trying to get um, they were trying to do a live action version in like the sixties and seventies. David Lean had a go, or was con talked about doing it, and then pulled out. Stanley Kubrick was thinking about making it, and then pulled out because he didn't think it could be done. And uh, John Borman, the guy who did Deliverance and films like that, he he was he actually wrote a script, but he was trying to do all three books as one film, which would have just been horrendous. Um, and when it when it fell through, he'd kind of been bitten by the bug of like Tolkien and fantasy, and went off to do his own fantasy film, which was Zardoz. I don't okay. know how you get from Lord of the Rings to Sean Connery in a red nappy, but that's what he did. Um, um, but yeah, then he went gave up and went animated. So yeah, it was kind of I think looking off my list, that's a similar one to yours in the sense that I'm. It was great that they let us watch it, but I'm not sure <laughs> to what extent it helped with like school or anything. I think I think it was just like an end of term kind of. Bonus. Yeah. Now that we're actually doing this, I'm remembering a lot of films that I watched at school. Um, so yeah, chuck a few out, improvise. Those, um we watched The Crucible in higher drama. So higher yeah. drama is sort of more yeah. or less more or less equivalent to A levels in English. No, no, uh, no, that, no, no, no. Advanced higher is like. You know how you do AS and then you do A level. Oh, yeah, so yeah, sort of like AS level. That's so right. higher is so, your AS and then so A more, levels but, 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 but during during sixth form, as, as they call it, and in, yeah, yeah. In, although yeah. you do you do an extra year, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Besides the point, uh, we did the crucible because we were we were performing that in drama. I remember <laughs> now I'm remembering because I remember watching it in class and I just went, Dad, have you seen the crucible? And you went, Yeah. It's like look at this bit, and I can't remember the name. It's one of the it's one of the judges. I think it's Davenport or one of those mm -hmm. ones, and he just goes. Mr. Proctor? Like Herbert the Proctor. Yes, I remember that. It was that. It was Paul Schofield or someone. That's it. Yeah, yeah I can't remember. I'll, I'll this is the Daniel Day-Lewis version of The Crucible, right? Yeah, Yeah, which is... I I really enjoy watching Daniel Day-Lewis perform because he's fucking bonkers. I remember that coming out and, it, it you know, when we, when we did the Oscars, it, I, I don't think it even showed up in anybody's 
Um, uh, it got it got a nomination in '96, but it completely passed us by. It didn't get much recognition at the time. Not to get uh, back into the Oscars, but yeah. considering it, it didn't and do it, very well at the box office. Apparently, it's a bit weak. Winona Ryder isn't it, and she, it's not her best performance because Winona Ryder is a great actress, but she's just she plays um, Abigail, and she's just a bit. Hmm. But um, Daniel Lewis is great in it. Um, Arthur Miller was nominated for Oscar like a teenager. Uh, it came out in '96, so I think Winona Ryder would have been about 20, 21. Yeah, she, she, no, she was about 25, but I thought Abigail was actually quite young. Uh, oh, yeah, she was 20, 23, yeah. 24. They used to do that a lot more, didn't they? Get really overage actors to play characters. No, I really enjoyed um, Danny DeLewis just going, It is my name! But yeah. I hated performing the Crucible. I think we, we got absolutely battered for our performances in higher drama because I don't think anyone actually enjoyed it. I didn't mind the film, but. Um, well, I mean, it's it's quite it's quite it's it's actually quite a heavy going play. I mean, Arthur Miller, you know, it's not easy to do. It's hard. I, would, I much prefer the play. I enjoyed reading it. Um, and it yeah, there's lots of twists and turns and um, stuff like that. And it is it is an enjoyable story. I just I just distinctly remember Herbert the Pervert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, that's probably uh, a really good use of school resources to show you a professional actors doing a play that you're studying, right? Yeah, that was that was other, definitely. Other yeah. Just sitting in the classroom and you're staring down at the book and self consciously reading it out in front, or, or some teacher with a really boring voice reading it out, which I had a lot at like uh, A level English. Yeah. Well, another thing to that I've got is um, Romeo and Juliet because at GCSE, so English equivalent to Scottish standard grades, um, we were doing Romeo and Juliet as our Shakespeare text. Um, <laughs> imagine how awkward that is in class when you're going, oh, you know, I'm going to have to say I love you to, to one of my classmates and all of that kind of, you know, one wants to read it out. Everyone's really self-conscious teenagers. Um, but it was good that they let us see Romeo and Juliet, obviously because of the age I was, you know, doing it, the, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio version didn't exist. Um, the, the version we got was from about 1970, Franco Zeffirelli. Um, and okay. it, uh, it was a really famous and popular version of Romeo and Juliet, but it's been completely surpassed now. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're going to show kids at school Shakespeare, Romeo, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet now, you'd do the, the, Leo, the Leo version because it's, much as I have problems with um, Baz Luhrmann, his version of Romeo and Juliet is pretty good, and um, it's much, you know, really sort of gets kids into it. But well, this, get 50% this of the class paying attention because Leonardo DiCaprio is in it, so that'll keep... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so that was um, that was pretty good. It was um, the only thing that kind of spoiled the atmosphere of it was um, the fact that the music from Romeo and Juliet is like a the theme tune's kind of a sad, like choral, almost like a, a orchestral kind of tune. It's really simple. It goes da 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 da, and some cheesy DJ in the eighties was using that theme tune as his like for a slot on his show of like dad's stories <laughs> that readers have written in. Um, you know, everything from my rabbit died and my kids are really unhappy to, you know, I've got cancer and it was a real downer. So as when we were watching that, we we're kind of imagining some DJ going, God said, sorry for you, mate, um, which kind of ruined the atmosphere a little bit. Yeah, but at least it was relevant. Who did you play when you played Robin and Juliet? We didn't, we didn't, we didn't end up, because it was for English literature, we didn't perform oh, okay, it. Or anything. Okay. But, you know, during, during the, the lesson, there would be times when we would read it out and you would just get given, a, for about three or four pages, you'd be given a character to read out, whoever. I don't know. So I never actually played it. How did you cope with like the the language? Obviously, the Shakespearean language of it. Big... Not not easy, not easily to be honest. Because any even unless you, unless you're Kenneth Branner or people who kind of spent twenty years in the, the RSC, a, an actor who does Shakespeare is going to spend some time uh, getting their heads around it. And then when you're in class and you're just kind of reading it cold, you kind of get halfway through a sentence and go, I, don't know, I, don't, I can't remember what I was fucking talking about. Yeah, really. But when you're fifteen or sixteen, I mean, you, you, you can. You know, you can obviously start to get the hang of it. And obviously Shakespeare was a really good writer, but it's 500-year-old language in, or 400-year-old language written in iambic pentameter. Yeah. Um, so it is, it is not easy to get to get your mouth around, as it were. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of Shakespeare adaptations or reading Shakespeare. The only Shakespeare film I've sat through is um, One Plot, is Macbeth. Um, what did you think of that, by the way? Well, it's pretty. It's a year after Sharon Tate was murdered, so it's a pretty dark film. Yeah, you can imagine what sort of headspace he was in. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. 
Um, but if it was cathartic to him, I guess it's a good thing. I'm not trying to stick up for Roman Polanski here because he's done a lot of bad stuff. Obviously, but, obviously, yeah, but in that, yeah. in that space, in that time frame, he hadn't done. Um, well, not yet. In that headspace, you can kind of understand where he's coming from. Um, but no, I, I, thought just, remember, right. I just remember when I was watching it that they'd made the um, they'd made the main characters wear full armor for a sword fight scene. Right, and it looked like they were about to fall over at any given moment because I don't think they were used to wearing armor, and they should have probably given them some sort of more lightweight substitute. But I think they gave them real plate armor, and <laughs> they kept putting their swords and practically falling over. And I thought, okay, this probably isn't what he was trying to convey. Okay, yeah, uh, actually, no, no. Well, that, that's the I've seen a couple of adaptations of Macbeth now that I think of. I've seen the one with Patrick Stewart playing Macbeth in like a weird like BBC Four kind of thing. And then I saw the 2015 Justin Kurzel one, which that's was the one with yeah, it was shite. It's like it's about an hour and fifty minutes long. Macbeth is like a three and a half hour play. Mm. It's like a long production. They cut out like the final. Like I went to see it with my mum, and she they mm. cut out like the best her favorite speech from. I think it's Lady Macbeth's last speech. And they cut out the yeah. last bit of it, so she wasn't happy with it. But yeah, it was just you know, all, all literary adaptations are on that fine line, don't they? Because yeah. if you're a fan, if you're a fan of the original, and they cut half of it out, it's going to piss you off. Yeah, yeah. but. Back to um, things you've seen at school. I actually, yeah, I did see that Macbeth at school. I did, I did because we were doing Macbeth in S four English, so that's what I saw. Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's like a fifteen or an eighteen, and I'm not sure everyone was. Well, I definitely wasn't eighteen by the time I'd even left school. But no, that was, that was yeah. quite a good thing to watch at school. Um, I think I think you probably picked something terrible that I watched at school. In primary school, we watched High School Musical one, two, and three. <laughs> Why did they make you watch that? Because there were about four guys in my class and about seven thousand girls, so it was like, right. oh, "What do you want to watch?" Well, there's new Zac Efron's films out, so they, right. they released one in like 2006, one in 2007, one in 2008. Like the holy, like you know, like the holy trinity of terrible films. So it was, yeah, Christmas time we watched that, and it was, yeah, they were crap. Um, I mean, the, the boys were like, "We don't, want, we don't want to watch this. Can we go outside and play football?" Like, no, you're staying and <laughs> watching a high school musical. Um. Those are probably the worst films I've seen at school. Although I really didn't like War Horse. It's probably hard it's probably harsh to bracket War Horse in a high school musical, but everyone knows high school musical shit. So I think out of films that I've seen that were meant to be good or intended to be good, I really didn't get on with War Horse. I thought it was a bit shit, a bit lame. Yeah, I mean to be honest, I haven't seen it. Um I, th- the, I remember the reviews the reviews were mixed and I, you know, I thought I'll get around to watching it and I never did. We talk about a film that a, a crap film that I didn't like when I watched. Um, I might, I'll tell you what, I might enjoy this now while I watch it, but I, I was shown a film at primary school level, which was kind of 15 rated at the time. And um, certainly, not, not really, in, there was a little bit of inappropriate, but mostly just because it went over our heads. It's a film called A Private Function. Right. And I think that head teacher at school was just trying to educate us a bit, show us some, something a bit more classy. And Private Function is a, it's a film uh, written by Alan Bennett. It's not an adaptation of any of his plays or anything. It was written for the screen by Alan Bennett. And because he's um, you know, a literary national treasure, I think he wanted to show it to us. And it's set during like just post-war in the rationing period. Was, uh, there, there's a local town in Yorkshire is celebrating the marriage of the future Queen and Prince Philip. But because they're under rationing, they can't get really nice food together. And someone's like illegally feeding a pig on the black market. And it's all about you know people trying to steal the pig. And there's all sorts of <laughs> things. And it's got like Michael Palin and Maggie Smith in it. So I'd probably quite enjoy if I watched it now. But for there's a bit where I think Maggie Smith is just on all fours with a bare backside. And there's a bunch of kind of 11-year-olds going, what's, what's going on here? Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of what makes Alan Bennett good is just not going to do well for a... Um, you know, for eleven-year-old audience, because his films, his stuff is all about these lovely little observations and ironic quotes. Like, we started off trying to set up a small anarchist community, but people wouldn't obey the rules, <laughs> and all of that was going uh, what? And I remember that was this. You know, when someone's tried to show you something and they really like it, and the audience that they're showing it to doesn't like it, and you've got a kind of awkward, cringy feeling all the way through the film. I'm, to be honest, I'm sure if I watch it now, I'd like it a lot better than I did when I was 11. Yeah, I th- see that description you've given me. Did you say Maggie Smith is on all fours? Yes. Now, see, Maggie Smith to you in 1980, when, when did this one come out? 1983, 84? Yeah. That's totally different now. It's just someone who knows Maggie Smith as Professor McGonagall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. she wasn't <laughs> like a young starlet or anything, but, you know, she was kind of normal, normal adult age, so it was, yeah. You want to throw another one out there? 
throw another one. Um, so yeah, like I said, we went to see War Horse, and it was a big thing. We went to the cinema, so we didn't actually watch it at school, but we went as a class to the cinema to see. Yeah, it. yeah, class trip. Yeah. Um, and it's because we were doing, I think it was this was S four, so we were doing um, the First World War like everyone does. Uh, um, second school, we're studying you know uh, everything that was going on in World War One, and the film just didn't have any any relevance about what we were doing. Like we, we were talking about you know what caused the war, the events that led to, you know, the start of the war, you know, we were talking about all the way back to 1870, you know, with Otto von Bismarck and stuff like that, and, you know, resentment and expansion and the arms race and stuff like that. And Wars just doesn't really contain anything about that. No, about, no, you, you're more likely to go that of a documentary, aren't you? Well, yeah, it was literally just a horse. <laughs> so, yeah, we didn't really like it. What pissed me off more is that when we were doing the American Civil War, uh, 12 Years of Slave was out at the time, and we were like, can we go see that? And they were like, no. I was like, but it's more relevant. They were like, no. And it's probably because in S4 you're doing your standard grades, or they're called National Fives now, but that's basically GCSEs. And obviously GCSEs aren't as important as what you're doing in your final year at school, which is your advanced hires or A-levels. But yeah, it was just a bit It was just a bit of a lean film. It was a bit disappointing from Spielberg. Ironic that my favourite film I've seen at school was a Spielberg, and one of my least favourites was a Spielberg as well. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're going to look at kind of war films, I was shown a couple of war films at school, and I think they were trying to do the same thing for me that they were for you to kind of this is you know this is relevant. It's a historical um, period that you're that you're learning about. So watch these films, and I, it, one it doesn't work that well because it doesn't tell you you know and you know Hitler had just you know moved fifteen divisions west, and then that's why the the battle was more difficult. You just don't get that in these films. It's more about the the actors and their experiences, but. I do, I do remember really vividly watching A Bridge Too Far. That's a great film. <laughs> it, it is a good film. I think the, the, the problem was it was, a, it was actually, again, I don't think it would be 15 rated now. Maybe it would be borderline 15. There's a little bit of language in it. And obviously, it's about the Arnhem invasion after D-Day. They thought they could end the war by Christmas, so they, they sent paratroopers into Netherlands, and it didn't work out. I think the problem was, at that age, a lot of the people in the class, especially, you know, we were all like, oh, we, we want an exciting war film. You know, mm -hmm. like, where there or Force 10 from Navarone, which is the sort of war films they used to make where it's all very exciting. And this is about a little bit more realistic about the war and everything and it's a, it's a battle that the Allies lost so it was quite downbeat and we weren't getting what we wanted out of it. And, and we weren't learning anything really about why the thing failed. Um, it's also, it's it's three hours long so there's, that's a long a long time for like the, the I did it in two halves I think because of like lesson time but it's a, it's a, it's a long time for the, the attention span. The all-star cast was distracting because even at age, that age, I'd heard of most of the actors. And I'm going, oh look, it's Robert Redford, oh it's Sean Connery, James Caan, yeah. Uh, and but I'll tell you, speaking of James Caan, the, the bit that absolutely sticks out most vividly from that film is the James Caan anecdote because you know how that film breaks down into like lots of little stories about what happened to different people during the battle. Yeah. And his bit, I love his story, and apparently that's based on an actual true story. Real bloke is that he was a sergeant. His captain was really nervous before the battle and said I want you to guarantee me that I won't die I don't know whether that dialogue ever took place in real life but he really did the sergeant when he saw his captain lying among the dead bodies he was convinced that for some reason that he, he, he could save him stole a jeep drove across enemy lines took him to the, the medical tent pulled a gun on the doctor and said I want you, you must try and treat this guy and then um, you know there's a bit of dialogue before that when he should, oh, he's dead I haven't got time and he pulls a gun and says I'm going to blow your fucking head off if you don't try and, have, try and <laughs> save him and, the, and and obviously in, the, in those times, like a, a, a doctor's usually equivalent of like a major or something. So he's pulled a gun on a superior officer, superior, yeah. and they they do save his life, and they really sa saved his life in, in real life. And the doctor says um, he, he gets the the military police across and says, right, I want you to arrest this man for pulling a gun on a superior officer, and I want you to keep him under arrest for a total of ten seconds. <laughs> and I thought I, I, that story is really vivid, and that film is full of lots of vivid stories like that. But it didn't tell me anything about why Operation Market Garden failed. And similarly, yeah. Gallipoli, Gallipoli, which we watched. Now, this was at secondary school. We had quite a young and trendy history teacher who wanted us to get him all into history <laughs> by showing it dramatised. He actually had quite a decent rig for this film. He got hold of a projector and actually showed it on a, on a big wall. So it was almost cinema size. So it was quite good to watch that. And Mel Gibson's quite, you know, st you know a, a big star and hadn't quite turned into the, the alcoholic racist we know today. And it's, yeah. about, it's about Australian soldiers in the Gallipoli campaign. Again, it doesn't really tell you anything about why it failed or what decisions Churchill took, but you get a nice dramatic story. Yeah. But yeah, I think that definitely the same. But although I enjoyed the films more than you enjoyed War Horse, I think it's the same problem. It's like you show people a war film, you don't necessarily learn anything that you're trying to study about it in history. Yeah, well, another war film we watched, this was weird. That the, this, now I remember this, this is so bizarre. We watched A Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. Ah, yes, yeah. Which, I guess if you're teaching... 
children, not children, I guess, young people about the Holocaust, it's a somewhat accessible way because that's such a dark topic. And the film, have you seen it? Uh, you know what? I haven't seen it. Do you Again, mind, I, if, I, did you mind I, if I spoil it I, for you? Just no, for... Yeah, I, mean, I, I kind of... I kind of remember thinking, uh, I'm not sure how I could get on with like a, a Holocaust film that's... It's pretty bleak. Totally um, so basically, it follows Asa or Asa, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Asa Butterfield from Hugo, yeah, as yeah. the young son of a Nazi commandant of a, a concentration camp played by David Thewlis, but it's kind of portrayed as like, they move, I think, from Berlin or like a big German city out to the kind of sticks and to this nice big house, and, you know, they're kind of playing off as like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just doing this every day. David Thewlis doesn't really tell his family what he's doing. Um, and as a butterfly, he's just, kind of, he's just kind of exploring the area, and he comes up, he runs around the garden, and he basically run, leaves the kind of the house and leaves the grounds and goes and comes up to this fence, and he sees this little boy called, um, I think his name's Smooth or Small or something like that. He's a little Jewish kid. He's wearing blue and white... Um, prisoner like clothes and basically just kind of befriend each other they kind of play games but you know he's basically the kid's there to like i think he's, he's doing a job as a, like a laborer on the camp and basically they just kind of befriend each other there's sort of, like other dark bits where like there's a a young officer in the command of david Thielers who basically beats a jewish kid a jewish um, servant to death it's pretty yeah. dark stuff but basically the way the film ends is that um the acid butterfield's like oh why don't i come and play with you on the other side of the fence and um the, the other ones, like, they, they, they're played off as really young, innocent characters. So the, um, the young Jewish kid goes and gets um, spare prisoner's clothes for Asa Butterfield to wear. Mm. And then it ends with basically them being shipped off to the gas chambers and killed. All oh, right, yeah, yeah, okay. So it's it's really dark. It's a really dark ending. You know, it ends with, like, a shot of his mum crying and screaming and howling. Um, but <laughs> this isn't funny, but the, we watched this on the last day of school before we were meant to be going on summer holidays. <laughs> You'll finish school on a bit of a downer. We'd, we'd finish the curriculum. We'd finish the course. We'd, we'd sat our exams. We'd sat everything. I think this wasn't the end of thirties. We haven't. Even, we, we weren't yeah, even there was anything. We weren't like any essays. We weren't. Yeah, we weren't doing any coursework. It was just a really depressing way to finish. And like we finished it, and then the teacher was like, uh, "Right, so have a good summer." Then it's like, "What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? You just made us watch one of the most depressing films of all time." It was like, "Oh, have a good summer." But yeah, that that was a distinct uh, film experience for me at school. Yeah. Um, my in terms of like inappropriate to watch, this is inappropriate for entirely different reasons. Because at least that was legitimate within the the. Um, it uh, was in history, yeah. Yeah. Um, within the I think the most inappropriate function again, and this is primary school age, and this was like I think we were like nine or ten, and there was a substitute teacher. He was a Scottish guy, and I remember thinking he was really trendy at the time. Amazing. It's like early 80s, but actually looking back, he might not have been that trendy because his hairstyle was very 70s and this is the 80s. But I just remember him being quite young and trendy. I can't even remember his name or anything. So just not to interrupt, but I have two great stories about a substitute teacher who is also Scottish. And I'm just so excited because every good story from school starts with, and he was a substitute, was a substitute teacher. teacher. Yeah, so this and one. For that added bit of space you've put, and he was Scottish. So I that was just for flavour. I don't think yeah. his, his, his uh, background led to any of this. But but for, for whatever reason, I mean, he, he did sort of, I think he, I don't know, I think he was just trying to, you know, he, uh, even though he's a substitute teacher, he wanted to kind of, you know, impress upon us that he was actually quite cool and didn't take any nonsense. And, and But then for for whatever reason, I think just because he showed very poor judgment, he, he stuck a, a Bruce Lee film on. <laughs> we're like nine or ten. And Bruce Lee films right then were like full on 18 rated. And um, this one's the big boss. I don't know what rating it is now, but it probably still is eighteen rated. Yeah, um, everyone was really, everyone was really, really kind of um, worried about. There was like a big moral panic about like videos back then, like the video nasties. But there was also a big moral panic about martial arts films. If and it was like if a film was normally like a PG, yeah, and there was no uh, um, twelve rating back then. If if something was a PG because because there's got fighting in it. If that fighting involves a lot of kung fu, that would put it up to a 15. It was like you would go up one rating if there was kung fu in it because of this whole idea that martial arts was this kind of scary thing and nunchucks were banned. Illegal for sale in the country and, you know, you couldn't show them in films. It's really mad. So to show a film like that to, like, nine-year-olds... Um, and the big boss is Bruce Lee's first film when he went to Hong Kong. It's shot in Thailand. and I don't really know why they went to Thailand to shoot a film rather than doing Hong Kong, but... It was a huge hit and everything. It's got the ice factory fight scene, if you've ever seen that. But, yeah. you know, he, the, the fights result in people being actually killed. 
Well, not actually. I mean, not in real life. It's not a snuff film, but the characters <laughs> are, are killed in the story. You know, that you don't just fight. You, you, it doesn't end with someone like lying on the ground, nursing no. a bruised jaw, and Bruce Lee's the winner. People, you know, the characters die. Yeah, you and, then, and then and then he goes off and like has sex with a prostitute in a brothel. <laughs> and you know, and there's certainly no, you know, because the film's eighteen rated. There's certainly no kind of, um, you know, attempts to like hide the nudity and the and the explicit sex scene. Did your um, granddad ever find out about this? I don't think they did, um, <laughs> because we sort of we said, "Well, we're not telling him about this because he might he might show us another film." <laughs> um, but then he he never came back, and I don't know if he never came back because they didn't need a substitute teacher anymore, or because they found out. <laughs> but we never saw him again. And, but <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> it's. Um, yeah, but again, I, I, I can't really comment. I can't really tell him that there was any education. Well, I found it very educational, but I don't think it was the kind of education value that the school was trying to give us. Yeah, well, my, I had, we had um, three famous substitute teachers at my school. They, they yeah. were famous throughout the school. So we had Mr. Nugent, who was, I'm pretty sure, criminally insane. Um, <laughs> he, he was in, uh, my first memory of Mr. Nugent was in, uh, this isn't the first story, but it's, it's a great story. Um, we were in physics or something and he used to carry around this block and he would just slam it on the desk to try and get us to be quiet. And he would say the most inappropriate stuff. He was like, Oh, you know, I think we butchered like one of our circuits or something. He said, the guys, I'm disappointed in you. We're going to need you to do that. But the girls, you guys are going to be in the kitchen anyways when you're older. So it's fine that you can get, and we were like, you can't say what you can't say that. And then <laughs> there was Mr. Main, who was just a lovely, like, he was about 95 when I was there. And he was just this old guy who would just basically jog about the classroom and be like, oh, yeah, I do 100 press ups every morning because that's the best way to wake up. But the best substitute teacher, and everyone was like, wait till you get Mr. Crow. Now, Mr. Crow, he, he passed away quite recently, actually, which is a real shame because he was an absolute fucking legend. But what he would do was, he, <laughs> he was famous for having his briefcase. And in that briefcase were two films. So you know that if your teacher's sick, you're thinking, fuck, right? Don't be another English teacher. Don't be an, uh, the other drama teacher. Be a substitute teacher and be Mr. Crow. Be Mr. Crow. Be Mr. Crow. And we used to see this <laughs> bald head walk in with his glasses. Everyone was like, literally, it was like, fucking come on. Get in there. So you get in and you'd be like, oh, so the teacher's left you this work. It's like, put on little criminals, Mr. Crow. Put on little criminals. He's like, no, you've been left with Put on little criminals, Mr. Crow. Put it on right now. No, you've got work to do. Little criminals now. And basically, it would be about 50 minutes of pretending to do work until he caved in and would just put on the DVD of little criminals. But if he always had it in his bag and he knew that they were going to ask for it. He's always like, oh, I've not got it on me. I've not got it on me. He's like, we can see your briefcase, Mr. Crow. Don't pull that shit with us. Get out. Play it. We'll say, get out to a teacher. Fucking. But you say, get little criminals on. Get it on, you know. Play that fucking DVD. He, he must have had those in his box because eventually he would go look if either was it because he wouldn't always be doing a, a, a class that he knew anything about and he could just kind of stick it on and i don't know what he specialized in he always used to say that he took about 35 years to become a teacher as it was and he, he failed every single exam he took so i don't even know what his specialty specialty subject was but apart from little criminals but <laughs> basically he, he would put on little criminals and it was this film i don't really know what it was about i, I, I remember being set in canada and it was about no, this. It's 1995, according to Wikipedia. Um, and basically, it's about this kid who's like, he's a little reprobate. Um, you know, he doesn't behave. He's, he's like committing crimes. He's 11 years old. And basically, he's basically being warned by the police saying, you know, as soon as you start, you know, as soon as you hit 12 years old, you're going to be taking criminal response when you can go to probably juvie or whatever. And it was great. It was just this little kid. It was cringy. It was really poorly done. But basically, he just... <laughs> Like, he, he just he just goes about committing crimes and stuff and, you know, gradually gets more and more serious. And then his house is on fire and he just lets himself die because of smoke um, smoke inhalation. Oh, no, he sets his house on fire because he doesn't want to be arrested or put into foster care. Oh, wow. Really thrilling and gripping stuff. But, yeah, basically he would crumble. Until... Is, it, is, it meant, is it meant to be a... Um... Um, like a cautionary tale for kids or something. Definitely. I genuinely think it's one of those ones that was like, you know, it was probably funded by like a school board kind of thing, you know. The... Is it, does this feature a conversation between two boys um, who are sort of trying to impress each other and they're talking about all the action films they've watched and one of them thinks that Steven Seagal's is soft, soft as shite or something like that? I... Honestly, I'd have to watch it. I cannot remember this one. I just distinctly remember this little reference. I, I mean, the storyline the story you're describing... Seems familiar. I don't know why. Um, I don't think many people have seen this. To be honest, I think the only people to have seen this film are 
pupils that went to my school and were <laughs> or, any other, or any other school that he went to with his little box of DVDs. Yeah, genuinely. But I don't think anyone has seen this film apart from people in S3 English in 2009. Um, but... Um, yeah, so that, that that was that was a good memory of school. It wasn't a great film. It wasn't anything special, but it was just it was just great bullying a teacher into letting us watch <laughs> into letting us watch this film. And then he had a, he had, another, he had another film which was kind of like this weird kind of. I think it was I think it was set in Brighton. It was set on some seaside town, and basically it was um, these young people, you know, wanting to go out and party and drink like that. But it was all done through like song and hip hop, and that was shit. And he also had that in his, his briefcase as well. But no, that that was good he memories didn't... of school. Mr. Uh-huh. May rest in peace. He was a good guy. Ah, bless him. You want to take another one? Um, I think I'm I'm slowly running out of um films to watch. And I'm, well, I'm well, like, shall I crack through a couple of categories I've got then? Yeah, because I've got my I've got the Mr. Smith ones, which I briefly told you about before, and they're good ones to end on. So, okay, all right, you 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 end on that. So, there's a couple of quick ones. I, I suppose, like we talked about a couple of literary ones. I did a couple, a couple of other literary ones, which are you know, different things. I think. Um, when we were at primary school, we did all the Roald Dahl books. Okay. And, that, I mean, you know, sometimes you get given a, a, something to watch at, at, uh, at school because it's an adaptation of what you're studying and you need to liven it up. You didn't need to do that for us with Roald Dahl because we thought they were great. I mean, they were written for people our age. They were really good because Roald Dahl's kids' books are really good. And I, I just went through them all. Danny the Champion of the World, uh, the Twits and all of them really enjoyed it. And, for whatever reason, they thought, well, just in case the kids aren't enjoying this, okay, they let us watch Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. Um, the original one, not the remake with Johnny Depp being kooky. Um, <laughs> obviously, that that wasn't out at the time, so we were spared that. Yeah. But, yeah, I, mean, I just remember thinking, I, I didn't need to watch this one. I'm glad we did, because Gene Wilder's great and everything. The other the other couple of the three ones we did, um, at GCSE level, we were really... Um, we were really struggling with our Charles Dickens because back, back then you did a Charles Dickens for GCSE. Um, now, I know people who did uh, an Oliver Twist or David Copperfield or Taylor Two Cities at GCSE and they like Dickens because those books are quite accessible. They've got good yeah. stories and everything. Well, not that this, the, the one I'm going to do is, but they were more appropriate for people that age to kind of, yeah. they're more, more likely to, to get into it or get their heads around it, but we got great expectations. Yeah, which is it's one it's one of his later novels. You know, well, like writers sort of tend to kind of get a bit more ambitious or try and do something different or a bit deeper or darker with their later books. And it was just maybe if I'd done this at A level or, or even later or read, read it now, mind you. But back then, I just thought, oh, this is so fucking heavy going, and the English teacher was quite boring. I just couldn't stand it. And yeah. so they decided to like liven it up for us by showing us the David Lean version of Great Expectations from 1946. Okay, and it's it was actually really good um you know because it's david lean and he was you know, one of the greatest directors of all time and john mills is playing the the main character as an adult and there's lots of other terrific actors in it the problem is it's two hours long so you get a two-hour respite from being bored to death and then you go back to the book but i do vaguely remember thinking yeah this is quite a good story i don't know why we're hating it so much but we are i think that happens and, to most kids though these days yeah. even, even back then but these days were especially people rather watch the film or you know yeah and, and another one we got at gcse level which again we this is more like roll the roll down because we didn't need the film to enjoy the book because we were enjoying the book we, we were lucky the best thing we did at gcse english was uh, to kill a mockingbird yes and and, and, and then to be honest, i watched that at school as well so yeah and and the, i remember the teacher giving us the book to read and i think she kind of knew she didn't need to kind of you know how like this and i tell talk about the themes and illusions of this book you know you go oh, okay well that takes the fun out of it I, I seem to remember they let us get on with reading this book and we all liked it. Yeah. It's like, this is actually really good. I mean, I don't think it was really intended to be re- read only by children, but it's a really good sort of that level book for like kids that age. And we all really liked it. And then, and then they let us watch the film, which is, fa- it's a, you know, it's a fantastic film. You know, you get uh, um, Gregory Peck doing all the courtroom speeches, which is certainly better than, you know, the kid next to you in class reading it out. Um, and the scene where, scout the little girl faces off the adults in the lynch mob by talking to them by name and saying i go to school with your son and all kind of that sort of thing that was really powerful but again we didn't need to watch it because we were already enjoying the um the book but uh looking back at it now my little film anorak comes on and uh robert duval made his film debut playing boo radley so he did he, I don't think he even has a single line of dialogue. He just sort of pops up at the end, you know. And don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's, it, it's Boo Radley finally, finally gets, involved, finally gets involved at the end, yeah. and um, 
you only see him then. I don't think he even has a line of dialogue, but like, yeah, that was Robert Duvall. See, now that you're mentioning films that you've seen, I'm now remembering that I saw that film at school as well. I did, we did uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in, I think, fourth year or something like that. Um, great film. And we, we've, already, mm. we've already discussed it with Gregory Peck. Um, Winning an Oscar. Yeah, was it robbing Peter O'Toole, apparently? Yeah, I mean, and Peter O'Toole did Lawrence of Arabia that year. And again, I mean, if, 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 you, know, if, if you could nudge the film universe, you would just delay... Just delay um, the release of uh, of Lawrence of Arabia by twelve months, and yeah. it would be cleaned up. You know, um, yeah. And you mentioned um, Roald Dahl. I think I, I've seen the James and the Giant Peach film. I can't remember when it was made, but the the sort of animated one, the sort of is it the stop animation one? Joanna Lumley, Miriam Margulies, Simon Callow, Richard Dreyfuss, and Susan Sarandon. It's weird watching films at school because you're excited to watch them because you're not having to do any writing, not having to do any paying attention mm-hmm. to any learning. But see, when I was watching films, like. You never got to fucking finish them because the class lessons were only like fifty-five minutes long. Yeah, I, for some reason uh, they 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 managed to finish off the. I mean, I think because we, we had, when we had a double lesson at school, and that was often long enough to watch a film. Although Bridge Too Far, they showed us over two two sittings. Well, yeah, we we had when we got older, we would have you know double French and double yeah. you know, that, and obviously it was easier to do double PE because they could you know drive you to you know. A field uh, somewhere right yeah, proper, proper facilities or whatever. Um, but no, see, watching films it would be staggered, and it kind of ruined your experience of you know watching the film. It was yeah, you'd start. But do, you, do you not? Do you not like have memories? If you're going around someone else's house, this, this used to happen a lot at, at my age because you know we didn't have streaming and it would just kind of you know, watch what was on or watch what people had. But there were a lot of times you'd go around to see someone, you know, you'd see see friends or something, and they would have a film on on video. And it would be oh, it's it's Top Gun, and you would watch the middle thirty minutes of Top Gun, and yes. then you go to someone else's house and watch the last thirty minutes, and then go to someone else's house and watch the first forty minutes, and it was like it was like watching Top Gun remade as a, a like a French New Wave film because they just you know they were on narrative. Yeah, you're trying to piece it together like it's CSI, or yeah, you're yeah. trying to figure out what the fuck like Columbo basically. You've already. Yeah. Um, I, I remember that with we didn't say at school, but Lord of the Rings Two Towers. We went around to a friend's house, and yeah. they were in the middle of the scene, just where the the wards or the wards start attacking the yeah the the band of travelers but yeah i don't look back at films at school with much fondness apart from mr crow and mr smith yeah. we'll get on in a bit but I, it just seems like a waste of time maybe it's because i did i did history and a lot of the stuff we would watch in history was fucking boring We're going to take a brief intermission now, sorry to interrupt the flow. The second part of this month's episode is available to download now and includes the concluding part of James Adamson in conversation with James Adamson. Then we will have the regular hidden gem, which is Alan Parker's Angel Heart, our One That Got Away feature on David Finch's Captain Nemo, and a remake Hate Watch of 2015's Sacrilegious Point Break. That's all for the first reel of this month's Double Reel Film Podcast. I wrote, recorded, mixed and edited the episode with the help of Anchor FM and Audacity, and as ever, everything that sounded good was down to them, and everything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. I'll give you a full set of credits at the end of Reel 2, including details on the films and features we've discussed this month. See you on the other side.